Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Daily Objective from your co-host, myself, Nikos, and Raka. Good afternoon. And today is a first because we have a guest, and our guest is Inaya Folarin Iman. Inaya, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So Inaya is a contributor to Spike. She's also involved in the Free Speech Union, and she's fighting the good fight for free speech and for reason in the UK. So it's, it's great to have you with us uh, today. So the topic today is, the, the title is The Sins of the Fathers. And I remember I come from a politicized family and the first political discussion I ever had with my parents who were both on the axis of left to radical left. One day I remember I asked my mother, what is fascism? So in the school we had this national celebration about the victory against the Italian invaders in World War II. And I asked, what is fascism? And she gave me an answer that I still remember. She told me fascism is basically collective responsibility, is seeing people as being parts of groups and some groups are good and some groups are bad. And the understanding back then is that this worldview is something which is bad. This worldview is something that through education or through the, the, the general idea of a society is something which is to be fought. But recently, it looks like this is not anymore the fashion. Oh. So we, we hear stories about, uh, we hear demands about white people having to apologize or having to ask forgiveness for very real crimes that happened for people who had the same color with them centuries ago or many, many years ago. So the question is, since when is it, since when is color blindness not a good thing? So today, Naya, you wrote an article on Spiked on color blindness. So why is it that color blindness is not cool anymore? Yeah, no, it's a really astonishing um, development in the kind of so-called anti-racist movement. If we look at many of the kind of prominent people um, during the civil rights movement in the 60s in America, the whole idea was something that Jonathan Haidt called common humanity identity politics, which was this idea that um, um, we emphasize what unites us, not what divides us. And there's that really famous quote by Martin Luther King, who says, you know, um, we want to judge by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. But I think um, I don't even know specifically when this kind of fundamental change happened, but it really accelerated um, in the last 10 years, particularly um, emerged out of academia many of these theories like critical race theory um you know intersectionality standpoint theory which push forward this idea that for example racism um is all permeating in every single aspect of our life and it's pretty much nothing that we can ever do about it and and this whole idea of standpoint theory is this notion that um you know it's completely anti-humanist it's this idea that you know certain groups can never have access to and understand each other. So they're pretty much at completely islands apart. And so it's a huge kind of change in terms of how we um, understand the kind of fight towards a progressive um, universalist humanist society, which is to elevate the individual and, and judge um, the individual. But um, now that is deemed racist, they argue that um, Colorblindness is a way that um, white, the white supremacist system um, utilizes this notion in order to ignore the inequalities and disparities that have gone on. But as we've seen the progress that we've made, 
that's quite contrary to um, what has actually happened, the kind of progress that colorblindness as a notion has um, led to. Yeah, and I like what you say about islands. And the way I think about it, it's, it's like an epistemological Babel Tower. So in the Babel Tower, in the Bible, people cannot talk to each other and the tower collapses. So Raka, but could we say that there is at least, we should cut these people some slack because it's all about the correction of injustices. So why is, what, so I'm, I'm gonna play devil's advocate. So if you white people don't understand what the crimes have been committed in the past, how are we gonna have a just society today? So how do we reply to that? Um, by identifying what's wrong with it. Look, the, like I told you the other day, nihilism alone cannot be sold. It needs to be attached to values. And the same is true with collectivism. They basically speak the language of individualism. They say, yeah, this isn't, we're sticking up for the individual. We're sticking up for George Floyd and countless other individuals, but we're doing this to benefit the most highest number of individuals. And it's necessary for everybody to recognize the degree to which they've participated in this systematic racism because we are in the midst of a Holocaust, because we are still in the Jim Crow South, if you look at it from this particular angle. So the way to um, sort of unpack that, the way to address it is to get down to the essentials, to get down to like, um, what, what does it all kind of boil down to philosophically? And there you need to understand what is individualism? Uh, was the Enlightenment right or was the Enlightenment missing some pieces of the puzzle that was exploited by the collectivists, by the socialists, and led us down into this mess? You know, um, I was thinking about um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the famous sort of um, rightfully called anti-racist novel, which today is rejected because the, the hero, you know, the hero, Atticus Finch, he defends an innocent black man. Not because he's black, but he does it in the name of rule of law, in the, in the name of objective reality being recognized in a court system. So it's, it's ultimately anti-racist, but his motivation is that he is a lawyer with integrity who believes in what he's doing, and it ends up resulting in, in taming the forces of racism in the South. But I, I've heard it said that the author of To Kill a Mockingbird actually wrote a sequel in recent years in which Atticus is sort of exposed as being kind of a racist. He's kind of got latent racism, which is sort of a long time coming because when your motivation is, you know, rule of law or some other white capitalist construct like, you know, rule of law and individualism, then you're part of the problem. You need to be explicitly anti-racist the way that that's defined by the postmodernists, by the egalitarians. And you need to uh, accept guilt and identify that, you know, we all need to be part of this particular solution and course of action, or else we are part of the problem. So Inaya, today, something, the big news, let's say, not the big news, every day looks like we need to have an outrage in the UK and everywhere in the rest. And today's outrage was Munira Mirza. So she is a person of, <clears throat> ideas that the left does not agree with. And because he comes from an ethnic background that the left thinks should be thinking one way, we saw supposedly progressive commentators saying that actually the Tories are using her as, as a puppet. And 
this is something that I think even like three weeks ago or some years ago, definitely, we'd, we'd all be up in arms. So here you have a woman who comes, she makes her way through life having her own independent thought. And now she's been called for the fact that why don't you go with the group? So looks like racial thinking is actually the only game in town. And what I usually call it progressive racial because I don't want to use the term racist because maybe this is gonna shut some people off. But do you think that this is actually almost in its essence racist? Because the definition of racism, although recently the dictionary wanted to change it, the definition of racism is you see someone not as an individual, but you see someone as a member of the group. And actually, I would say this is also an issue of intellectual laziness. It takes too much time to unpack what uh, Mrs. Mirza was, is saying. And they do the obviously the easy thing. So what they do is they cropped parts of, the, of her interviews and said, this is toxic. And the toxic thing was common sense. She's saying like, you know what? There might not be in, in, in institutional racism. So Inaya, do you think we've reached the point where as what you described as woke identity tyrannism is racism and we should call it out as racism? Or is it that because we can still somehow say no, because the intentions might be good, this is something else. This is identitarianism, but identitarianism is not the same as racism. Um, well, you know, the, that famous phrase, the, the kind of road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think that it is deeply concerning that the kind of new defini definition of racism that has emerged is one that is specifically designed in order to prevent the, what I would see as the most vociferous um, um, racist activists at the moment, um, they can never be com complicit in racism. So they define it as, you know, a system of power and privilege that, you know, privileges people based off of race. And so they argue that in this current system as it's designed now, only white people um, can be racist. But as you've just described, my understanding of racism is, you know, stereotyping and defining people and judging people solely by the basis of their race. And I think the way that particularly ethnic minority people are treated, that descent from this particular orthodoxy is one of the most um, pernicious and disturbing developments um, in recent years, where we see that any kind of deviation, their subjectivity, their agency is denied, and they're assumed to be some kind of puppet. And for me, that is racist. This idea that um, um, ethnic minorities, black women or Asian women cannot offer their own free choice and unique mind come to their own conclusions and act within um, that decision. It's got to be somehow um, at the behest of a kind of white supremacist system. And I think, you know, now, and I think a lot of people have come to this conclusion, it's no longer good enough to just criticize it. I think we've got to really expose it for what it is, as I would argue racist, and really kind of vengeful and bitter psychological underpinnings that are motivating a lot of this movement. And I would say there's also an element of privilege there. I wouldn't say white privilege, but definitely middle-class privilege, which says that you people in the ethnic minorities are basically, you are this, canvas where I project my ideas and how dare you not act according to my ideas so there's there's it's 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 in a way saying go back to your place woman and your place is to 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 have basically our line how dare you go out of out of line so there is there's also this class element and we've also seen this class element with a protest that the middle classes in the UK who were Okay, now I'm stereotyping, but whatever. The classes, let's say the, the opinion-making classes that were so big on the lockdown, 
they are the same people who were this, who, who were excited by the fact that now there are protests and they say, no, that's something completely different. And they're the, the very same people that say to, to Munira Mirza, how dare you, or they say actually to you, I think you were also the, uh, you were the subject of, uh, you know, attacks about how you, how you dare to do this. So do you think there's also a class element there, not a, a privileged element there? I think you touched upon also in your spiked article on that. Yeah, no, I think um, as the movement, um, the kind of Black Lives Matter movement and many of the kind of identitarian movements pose themselves as a kind of radical challenging the establishment movement. But I, I, I find it hard to believe anything can be meaningfully challenging the kind of um, power structures in this country or, you know, in the world, if it is being endorsed so easily and so willingly by some of the most privileged and significant beneficiaries of the status quo. And I think that that is very, very telling that um, we've now got a movement that um, seems to elevate some of these incredibly superficial and, and problematic gestures such as kneeling and, and kind of putting your screen black. And that is somehow a substitute for the kind of long and often arduous work of actually trying to create a coherent political program to actually improve the material lives of people in this country so it seems like you know very much a white savior complex and um you know makes people feel good about themselves to perpetuate this idea that um you know certain groups are, are destined to be oppressed and privileged and they have the um, all of the solutions to be able to respond to that right yeah and you said something important arduous work and this lazy thing that i that people post like three lines they say, oh my god this is toxic that's intellectual laziness. And also it kind of tells us something about the complete lack of ideas and of political imagination on the other side. But there's one more element that I want both your take. And this is, okay, we've established that this is not the way to go. But Raka, how do we deal though with actual injustices? And I'm, I'm gonna go away from race and I'll give you another example. Let's say you are an Arab who used to live in Israel and left in 48. And let's say you are one of these people who left because of a specific action of the Israeli army, let's say. So I would say that this war was not the mistake of Israel, but let's say that you, an individual Raqqa, you were, there was an injustice against you by, let's say, the state of Israel. And now, 60, 70 years later, you go back and say, look, people, this used to be my house. So there has been a historical injustice and my grandfather used to own this. So could we say then that the ancestors of your grandfather, i.e., let's say you, should have a claim to the ancestors of the perpetrator, which is, again, on that specific example, that particular Arab that was kicked off the land by a particular, let's say, bad Israeli? I think the question of uh, statute of limitations and, and how to uh, protect property rights is for legal scholars to answer, but I'm more interested so I would address it by asking fundamentally, okay, so you're saying this happened, you know, when people talk about historical injustice, I'm saying, so you're saying this happened in objective reality. It's not the Arab experience. It's not the black experience. It's not the white experience. This happened. So that's number one. And number two, by what standard was it wrong? And now we need to talk about rights, about ethics, about the, the nature of man and, and, the, and what he requires to live. So I would reduce it down to those points. Uh, I liked what you said that racism is the only game in town. It's the only show in town. It, intellectually, there's nobody um, 
who seems to believe in agency, who seems to believe that the individual gets to shape his own identity and choose his own life. Um, it's, it's collectivism and determinism on all sides of the spectrum intellectually with the one sort of possible exception being religion, which is why religion is probably going to win when all this chaos cools down. Well, Back to you, Nikos. I, I, again, I won't address the religion. That's a whole story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was unfair of me to throw at you. But, but I think you, you said something important. The first thing is to understand what happened. So for example, in that case, I would say, so for example, if you're an Arab and you think that the way to go is to throw every Israeli in the sea, then we're not up to a good start because you, we don't, that doesn't help in understanding actually what the injustice is. But the same thing would apply with racism, I would say. The thing to understand is, what is the root of racism? And that's a discussion that we're not having. I'm all for addressing the horror of racism, but we need to understand where, where did it come from? And the easy answer, which is it was, uh, you know, Western civilization and capitalism, or what, that's definitely not the case. I mean, my ancestors were slave owners, and we were also slaves till the 19th century to people who had nothing to do with, uh, with capitalism. So the first thing is to understand, and the second is, is to see, like, how can we prevent this from happening? And this whole thing where we kneel down, I think this is the, goes to the exactly wrong direction because we're bringing back this mindset. And this mindset is that I put on these glasses and I don't see individuals, I see members of group. And this is the only way that it almost makes sure that we're gonna go back to this horror. So Inaya, the last, the last question is, and like, what would be your final thoughts in terms of how do we get out of this? It's one thing to, for people like us who agree and say, yes, let's bring back reason and human agency. But in, at least in like political terms, how can, how can this become, how does our opinion become again, the norm? How does it, how does, how do we make Martin Luther King great again? How do we make colorblindness like uh, the, the, the allowable opinion that it should be? Yeah, so I mean, I do have some ideas and, you know, they might be a bit disappointing, but I actually do think they're profoundly effective. And, and the first one is genuinely defend free speech. I mean, we are in a climate right now where people genuinely are unable or feel completely uncomfortable to be able to challenge this. And I think that only when we can actually, at least first and foremost, be in an environment where we can actually have a constructive and productive conversation, can we actually um, start to unravel and unpack many of the nuances and complexities of this issue. But I also think we need to actually be quite forthright with the actual empirical data and the evidence. When, you know, a lot of this Black Lives Matter, and particularly in the UK, it's this very overarching kind of one-dimensional narrative about what it means to be Black in Britain. But actually, when we start uncovering the figures, for example, there's huge disparities amongst um, Black and ethnic minority groups themselves. And so the picture is not solely one of a kind of systemic racism blunt instrument. And I think that we've got to be much more forthright with actually challenging the um, figures and getting them to actually specify exactly what they're talking about, but also have some perspective. You know, a lot of these um, activists are really determined to make us think that Britain today is indistinguishable from 1930s Germany. It's completely astonishing. And actually we've come a huge and long way in terms of equality under the law, in terms of job opportunities. And I think that when people actually 
really start to realize as many people I think are increasingly doing that um, the picture of Britain is not or even you know many other Western countries isn't this racist patriarchal white supremacist hellhole I think that people feel much more confident to be able to um, respond to those people with the facts because I think when they are intellectually scrutinized it quite quickly falls down like a house of cards so basically the two takeaways is defend free speech and be confident that the truth is important that truth is the way to to go raka what are your final thoughts as always it's not a question of what we're trying to fight against but what it is that we're moving towards so individually each one of our values are at stake here everybody needs to be approaching this by asking what do i want out of life and then the other uh, problems will miraculously be getting solved when you when when yourself rational self-interest is your north star but that does require philosophy fundamentals and we're not going to get there by only fighting against a negative agreed yeah so many thanks to to inaya and i have to say it's very important to have brave public intellectuals and brave people who fight because when people see you they say you know what this tweet that i've written I, and i'm afraid to press send you know what the hell with it. i'm gonna press send because it's as you said it's the truth mm. and it's it's i'm gonna go jordan peterson here how do you <laughs> say uh, when you don't name the things as they are you are contributing to the evil of the of the world anyway how to contribute to the world becoming a better place. So uh, follow the work of, uh, of Inaya, follow the work of uh, Free Speech Union, but also more importantly from our side, support the Ayn Rand Center in what it's doing and go to the Ayn Rand Center UK website, see how you can become a member. So Inaya, hopefully we're gonna have you again in the future. Tomorrow we're having Brendan O'Neill and we are discussing the, the, the very poor, to put it mildly, records of the media during the last two months and how they have contributed to all this toxic climate. But hopefully the media are gonna more and more have people like Inaya who is fighting the good fight. And on that positive note, we've already gone three minutes uh, over our time. Thank you very much. Thanks to my co-host, thanks to Inaya, thanks to all of you who are watching the show and hopefully supporting it. All the best and see you soon. Bye-bye.